Hey everyone, this is Charlie Shrem, and you're listening to Untold Stories. This is a show where we dive deep into the lives and personal histories of some of crypto's most influential leaders and find out how the crypto movement truly came to be. Let's dive in. What if I told you since 2013, there is a gentleman in our space who is the CEO and executive of one of the largest public relations firms in our industry, who has been for the past six years evangelizing and training future evangelists, hundreds of them around the world, like almost like a missionary for our space. His name is David Waxman, and he is the founder and CEO of Waxman PR. Waxman PR is a world-renowned blockchain advisory firm, PR firm, and David, having founded his own PR firm that caters exclusively to our growing industry, he is someone who is very smart, knows everyone, knows everything about our space, and has a very good way of thinking on the spot. And so we went through specific examples and fake examples of like, for example, what happens if you're the CEO of a Bitcoin exchange and you wake up to find yourself losing 20% of all your customer funds? Who do you call? What do you do? What's your first move? We spend a good portion of this show walking through these types of examples because David represents these people. He's the first person the exchanges are calling. He's represented so many coins, tokens, and companies in the space. For example, Dash, the Crypto Valley Association in Switzerland, Bitcoin Suisse, Coindesk themselves, IOHK, Cardano, Charles Hoskinson, Steam and Steemit, T0, Jax, CoinSource, which is one of their oldest clients. So much good information. I can't wait. I really, really can't wait to have this episode for you guys. I'll talk to you right after the ads. How do you actually live your life on crypto? How do you do it? I've been doing it since I first got started with Bitcoin back in, what, like 2011. But since 2016, I've been using the BitPay debit card to spend my Bitcoin on a day-to-day basis. And it's been such a great product that I've been using it for over three years. BitPay is now sponsoring Untold Stories, and they're going to be giving away free Visa debit cards to all my listeners. All you have to do is visit bitpay.com forward slash charlie it's such an easy card to use you get the card in the mail you download the bitpay app you put bitcoin on the app and when you want to send bitcoin from the app into your debit card it only takes a few seconds and you can spend your bitcoin anywhere credit cards are offered it's really so easy you almost wonder like why didn't this come out in 2011 when bitcoin first launched well it was very difficult to do in fact i actually tried to launch my own debit card but I wasn't able to because the credit card companies were very reluctant to do it. But now BitPay launched their product and a lot of other companies have launched credit cards and debit cards using Bitcoin over the years. I still will only use the BitPay card. I'm very loyal to the brands I like um, and I hope you guys are too. The fees are very low. You can use it to withdraw cash at ATMs. You can use it all around the world with very, very low fees. A lot of companies have tacked on like super high fees, and I don't like that. So check it out, bitpay.com forward slash Charlie. That's bitpay.com forward slash Charlie. You get a free card. You don't have to pay for it. Usually the card costs like 10 bucks or more. There's a commitment, but you don't have to do that here. It's a free card. There's literally no reason to not try it out. I've been using it for over three years. 
So check it out. You're a super loyal podcast listener, and you've been listening to my show for a while. So you know that Bitpanda, which is a company based out of Austria, has been working with me for a few months now. And I'm a huge fan of Vienna, and I'm a huge fan of Bitpanda. Let me tell you a little bit about them. Bitpanda is the leading European platform for investing in digital assets. Their core product is an easy-to-use crypto on-ramp and digital asset broker. They have over a million users, so you know they really care about their customers. What's amazing about Bitpanda is really how easy it is to set up an account and get going. They recently launched their own educational platform, and this is super cool, so check it out. Take a listen for a second, where you can learn all about Bitcoin and more. It's free, regularly updated, and you can earn five euro for free when you complete the quiz. So make sure you check it out, bitpanda.com. They are a big sponsor of ours and please give them some love because they love me. Over the years, a lot of companies have tried doing crypto social networking. But the problem is that there are a lot of really good social networking apps already out there like Instagram, Facebook, Snapchat. How do we build a social network that's perfect for crypto? Well, I want to talk about Pepo, our newest sponsor of Untold Stories. Pepo is an amazing social media app that's built for the crypto community. What's really cool about it is that you can get rewarded for uploading and putting out good content, and you can also reward with crypto people who put up content that you really, really like. It's fast and simple, and it's the first crypto-powered app to be approved by the Apple and Google app stores. You can find me on Pepo right now at Charlie Shrem, the same handle as my Twitter, and I'm going to be posting interviews, travel videos, and more. So make sure you check out Pepo. It's super cool. Pepo.com. Enjoy it. Untold Stories wouldn't be here without the amazing production company, Blockworks Group. A few months ago, I approached Blockworks Group and I said, hey guys, I want to do a show, Untold Stories. Can we make it happen? And these guys are the only event and podcast production company that I trust. Really, the show is powered by them and it wouldn't be here today without the amazing work of the Blockworks Group team. So for access to all the premier digital asset conferences and to check out their other podcasts in their network that they produce, check them out at blockworksgroup.io. That's blockworksgroup.io. I promise you will not be disappointed. In the course of history of the past decade of our industry, there are a lot of people that I've come across and I'm sure that you've come across. You almost say to, say to, we almost say to ourselves, like, how did those people decide or realize that this is something that they should do in the space, that this is something that uh, is even needed in the space? You know, going back to 2013, 2014, the last thing that anyone thought that we would need is crypto-related PR, crypto-public relations. But if we think about it in hindsight, right, if we almost like look back at all the messaging failures about all the public relations that we've done, even things that that have been like personally my fault, the things that I've done that have caused negativity in, in the crypto media or the mainstream media, if we look back and we almost could say to ourselves, damn, we really could have used David Watchman and his PR firm, you know, going back as early as 2011. David, thank you so much for coming on the show. Charlie, thank you so much for having me. David, so I mean, like over over the years, I mean, over the past uh, six years, so so now your company is going to be celebrating its, what, five-year, four or five-year anniversary, correct? Yeah, so we're a little over four years old at this point, uh, officially. 
but I, but I've been in the space since the beginning of 2014, just after Gox. So it's it's very interesting that you almost start you almost started this company. You came up with this idea, and you were in PR before, but no one was really thinking about how important it was for messaging, about information, about transparency. You have all these different things that no one was really uh, thinking of, thinking about. And over the years, you've worked with various companies and projects, coins and tokens like Dash, uh, the Crypto Valley Association, uh, Bitcoin Suisse, Coindesk, IOHK, you know, Cardano, Lisk, Steemit, T0, Jax, so many companies over the years. Did you realize that during those early years that messaging and transparency for, for crypto companies or back then it was really Bitcoin. Did you realize that this was something that was imperative, not just for you, for your business to make money, but for the industry as a whole? You know, I, I didn't think so at first. In fact, the first times I really heard about Bitcoin was in, I'd say, 2011, 2012. And it was very experimental. This is when you were already you know, getting in the weeds. But by the time I was really hearing about it, it was actually around the same time that so many others in America were too. And that's right after you know Mt. Gox. Uh, people had heard about the Silk Road, they had heard about Mt. Gox. And so the public perception about Bitcoin was pretty poor, even though it was really because most people didn't understand what Bitcoin was. It, it, this came down to being an education problem. And I personally wasn't educated enough to realize that deficiency until I started working in the space, which was completely by happenstance. This wasn't a decision, an active decision I made. I literally ran into a bar and I met the CEO of an early Bitcoin exchange They'd gotten about $2 million in early VC funding. And that's how I started this. And then just by asking questions, I sank into the same exact hole, the rabbit hole, essentially, that everyone else has too, which is I got excited by the tech and by its possibilities. It was then, after being in space for a little while, in meeting everyone from mining pools to wallet providers to FX brokers, that I started saying, oh man, like this space has so much potential and it's being held back by this terrible thing, which is a reputation based on misunderstanding. What does that, what does that mean? Cause I still feel like, I still feel like we have people that don't understand the space. And so education and, you know, lack of education, lack of understanding breeds hostility, right? Absolutely. And we absolutely have that problem today. We have a, a different version of it for lots of reasons that we can detail during this talk. But back in 2014, 2015, the vast majority of the time that I would pick up the phone and talk to a reporter, what I was doing was I was telling them the 101s. There were people who would just tell me, David, I'm absolutely certain Bitcoin itself is illegal. It's got to be. The US would never support another currency. And back then, most of the conversations that was happening were with reporters based in the United States. Over time, of course, things have changed. But back then, it was really the 101s. You couldn't talk about mining. No one understood what that was. They, they barely understood that Bitcoin could be broken up into multiple parts. So Bitcoin's price was over the price of $1, which of course it was for the time that I've been working with it. You know, people were like, this doesn't make sense. They didn't understand that you could break it up into eight decimal places. For so that you was, that was an issue. Like back. that was something yeah. that you felt really was, uh, um, so the messaging was so off a, a simple thing, like, be, you know, Bitcoin being able to be broken down into multiple units. That was something that really you sat around the table and said, we have to change this messaging. Yes, it was. We have to figure out how to go and tell reporters how it works and give them just enough information so they can start making sense of the news that we were talking about. Because it wasn't always just pure evangelism of Bitcoin. It might be, here's why this exchange's new API integration is meaningful. Or here's why this wallet adding support for, let's say, a new BIP or something is, is really important. 
you can't do that unless people understand the very basics. And back then, the amount of trade reporters, the people who focus on the space, or beat reporters, which are people who focus on Bitcoin, the cryptocurrency space, but work at, let's say, a mainstream publication, the number were very, very few. And many of those people were still, you know, kind of elementary from today's standards. You know, um, I almost want to ask you, so, and this is something that I never really thought about before. So almost what you're telling me is that your job is not just messaging in, in the message itself. I know that was vague, but what you're telling me is that you almost see it as your job to be the messenger to the mainstream media on how this connects the dots and why this story is important in the larger scheme of things. Definitely. I mean, a lot of our clients need, legitimately need for their organizations to prosper, for mainstream media to understand them, to be able to tell their stories. And they can't do that without understanding the fundamentals. And reporters come on and off beats constantly. It's the nature of the news media. And so education is a big part of it. And so we have a responsibility, we being PR agents, to help reporters out. That's what we do. If you're a good PR agent, if you can go and be a resource to media. And in this case, there's one extra step. It's not just providing a layer of connectivity or news angles or content for people, for reporters to pick from and slice through. But in this case, it's also about providing them with some of the educational resources, because where are they going to learn about it? I mean, today, again, there are a lot more, let's say, YouTubes with here's how Bitcoin works. But in early 2014, it really didn't exist. And the, the field was actually probably messier than it is today, insofar as there weren't a whole lot of news publications you could trust. There weren't any mainstream reporters who've been covering the space for a while. There were some celebrities, yourself included. But again, it, was, it, it feels like ancient times uh, from the lens of today. I, I just want to clarify one thing, Charlie. I was sure. not the first PR agent in the space. Michael Turpin was. And Michael came from a storied background in building organizations like MarketWire, which is a newswire service. Uh, and he had actually seen this opportunity before I ever did. And he was my original hero when I started the business. You're right. And I think you guys started around the same time. And Michael's a very good friend of mine. Um, but being around personally when you both had started, I almost looked at you guys as very different type of companies. Um, I almost looked at you as, and this probably changed over time, and um, I almost looked at you, you know, your your firm as more of, you know, personal branding, more, and I could be totally wrong, more branding education for the, the world, you know, the non-crypto world. And I always saw Michael as someone who did marketing and PR for within the crypto community. That's mm. probably changed, but I guess that's, as an outsider, uh, you know, doing research uh, potentially, because, you know, dude, I've been doing for years I've either been told that I should hire a firm or that I've looked into it myself. So I've done so many so much research um, about it, but that's kind of where I've, where I've seen it. But at the same time, you both have, you both are, you know, I hate to say to use this term soldiers because, you know, I don't, I don't like violence, but you guys are almost like soldiers. You guys are like the front lines when it comes to education um, in this, in this industry uh, and that's changed, right? That's the messaging has changed. Do you do you still find yourself? And when did this change? Do you still find yourself like almost having the industry as a client, right? When you first launched, you probably almost had like your client list, 
the Bitcoin industry is one of your unpaid clients that you have to continue yeah. to service, right? Absolutely. Uh, so the let me give you a quick uh, 30 seconds on how the company started. So I walked into a bar. I met that Bitcoin exchange CEO. This was for a firm called Coin Center, which was based here in lower Manhattan. Yes. And within a year or so, that CEO, uh, Jaron Lucasevitz, asked me to start my own firm. I would, was working for someone else. I didn't have any other Bitcoin clients, but I just loved the space. I was obsessed. All I was doing was reading Bitcoin talk, Reddit, and just every Bitcoin news site I could read just to get my hands on things and asking everyone questions when I would go to Bitcoin-related parties or Bitcoin conferences or the Bitcoin Center, which was here in New York at the time. And at that point in time, I, I said, listen, I wanted to devote my life to this. And so I went and was able to meet at one of the conferences, a Bitcoin wallet called Airbits. And yep. I worked with a VC that was investing with them. So now I suddenly had two more clients in this space. Eventually, I met the CEO at the time of a company making the Trezor. It's called Satoshi uh, yeah, Labs. And so I was able to start working with them. And suddenly I had a number of different... How were you able to do that? I'm confused. Like you just started and, and you had a background in PR. Yep. I mean, did these companies think that they needed you? Did you have to sell them on you? Yep. Or did they already know that they needed help with something and you just said, here I am, he nay you know? So Arabits needed help announcing their funding raise. And they needed that because whenever you raise money, you need to go and scream it from the top of the roof. You need to do that for essentially three or four different reasons. Uh, the first is you want your uh, new investors in the future to know that you were able to raise money from credible people, from accredited investors, from VC funds. So you really want that for, for future investment. You want your current employees and future employees to know that you are funded, meaning they can continue to work for you or they can work for you in the future because you've got enough money to pay them. This is really important. And that's how you're able to go and attract talent. And for, I never thought about that like that. And for customers too, your customers are, want to know that you're going to actually be there in six months and 12 months or in the future. And the companies that can successfully raise versus the ones that can't, that's often a mark of quality. It's a quality check because you know, deep in your mind somewhere, that people have done due diligence in that firm. So even if you're not a client of theirs right now or a customer of theirs or for instance, a user of their wallet, you need to know that, it, you know, that someone else has checked under the hood. And so, again, that's a reason to hire an agency, and it's often one of the first reasons that someone does. Uh, someone like, uh, you know, the Trezor, they were looking for a way to explain their really complicated tech. It, I mean, you can boil it down simply, which is you've got yourself a vault, which is what Trezor means in check, uh, for your Bitcoin. But Bitcoin wasn't worth that much at the time. That's another thing. So how are you going to go and explain why it's valuable to use cold storage to people that, you know, might only have... $90 worth of it when at the time the treasure was retailing for $99. And so how did you? Well, it's by breaking it down to details. It's by explaining that a wrench attack is something that you are could be conceivably safe from with a treasure. And the wrench attack, of course, is someone hits you with a wrench until you give up your private keys. And that with that's so cool. That's so cool what you said. You said you can't really explain to someone why they need cold storage when Bitcoin's not worth anything. Yeah, it's 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 troublesome. And it was something that we had to yeah. do. And the thing is, is that because Bitcoin wasn't worth that much at the time, there weren't a lot of treasures selling yet. Of course, with a year, a year and a half later, and they were just completely flying off the shelves as Bitcoin became something that the mainstream world began to really embrace. But at the time, it was a challenge. And the other thing is, is that when I really premiered the company, which was in the second half of 2015, 
it had been essentially the end of a two-year bear market, but we were still in a bear market ever since Scox and the slide down for $1,200 Bitcoin. And so it was hard to convince people this was even going to last at all. And I remember talking to my friends, uh, the ones from my former lives, from school, et cetera, and they couldn't believe that I was devoting my life to something that looked like it was going to die. So how did you convince them? I didn't. Time did. And what happened was it turned out that this wasn't going to end by March of 2016. Instead, early 2016, things started taking off. And of course, we saw that in 2016 alone, the market cap of crypto tripled. And then in 2017, it 30x. And that made a whole lot of people pay attention, sometimes for the wrong reasons. In fact, I'd say mostly for the wrong reasons. But at the very least, they realized this was an industry that was going to last. And as the industry expanded, well, the types of players expanded. And then my job, Michael's job, and a lot of other people's got a lot more complicated. At what point do you think that really started to change? At what point did people... And I know it that it's different for everyone and, and price comes into it a lot, right? Like when the price went up, people started taking it more seriously. But if we were to take almost like take price out of the picture or take the effect of price and, and minimize it, at what point in the history of our industry do you really think that we were start starting to be taken seriously from, you know, the world as a whole? Or, or did it happen by from different people over time at different times? I think that price got in the headlines, and then people started realizing that there's some value. Not in decentralization. I don't think that that's something that has been able to convince the general public yet of the importance of, of Bitcoin and other, let's call it DLTs. But I think what mm. did, con but they have been thinking about the nature of money. That's changed dramatically. And I think it did take Bitcoin rising to a certain price uh, that people could say, hey, there might be a supranational currency that is valid, that might become a form of payment which was initially what people thought Bitcoin was going to be particularly useful for. And I think that uh, there was a point in time when Bitcoin was registering on enough people's minds for enough minutes or hours per day that the things changed. And now people are able to talk about the other aspects. And you actually could walk into almost any room in some countries and people would be able to describe the beginning tenets of blockchain. They'd be able to understand you know, something like what Ethereum might be useful for. They may have some conception of a world computer and that changes things. Well, even something like, but even basically something like um, knowing what Bitcoin is, that is so important in and of itself or knowing what crypto is. Um, you talk about, you talk about like price. And so this is a kind of a question that I've always thought about, but I really, I never had anyone to ask. I'm actually happy I did the show then. So, um, do you remember years ago, it's not really, it doesn't really happen anymore much. I remember years ago, a one news article or one headline could dump or pump the price like 10 to 20%. Um, it was part of our lives and it, it happened so much that we almost would ignore it. Did, did reporters back then, or do they now know, you know, how much power that their pen has for us as a space? How much what they write has an effect on us? Do you think reporters almost ever uh, abuse that power? I hope not. And actually, the best publication in the space, the ones that people trust, for years, they've done an incredible job of maintaining journalistic integrity. Because to your point, news has an effect. Uh, the effect is people learn things from that, and they make decisions based on the information that they know. And so it's imperative for companies 
for PR agencies and for journalists to be very, very careful, to do as much diligence as they can, to work with trusted sources, and then to fact check. And you'd be surprised at how great the fact checking has been. For example, uh, Pete Rizzo, who was uh, late of Coindesk, there's a guy who has been in the space for a very, very long time, and he was extremely judicious about determining what stories he was going to write and what was going to be in them and making sure those reporters lived up to those standards. And again, one of the great things about the burgeoning of the space was that you saw reporters from mainstream publications that had gone to professional journalism school who had worked in many different publications before who were able to go and write stories. And they might get things wrong. For instance, when you're trying to describe a brand new technology, you might get a detail wrong. And as you and I know, the details matter in a space like this. And so I can't tell you how much time I've spent trying to fact check things often after a uh, story's out, trying to get things changed. This way, the details are exactly right, because one decimal place is an order of magnitude. But should you try? I mean, doesn't it make it worse? I'll give you an example. I'll give you my example. Um, I, I, I am guilty of and I served time for a specific crime, but the crime that I was arrested for was a lot bigger and very different. Ultimately, that specific charge was, I don't know, whatever happened to it was dropped or the government, I don't know. Um, the point is that the New York Times and major news articles and new, you know, news organizations, even till today, six, seven years on, a simple fact check of what my crime was, they are not doing. Mm. Because the crime that they said I did sounds a lot better in the news. And it's just simply inaccurate. It's not even like up for discussion. It's just inaccurate. It's like saying that you raped someone versus you killed someone. Well, actually, it's a very bad example. <laughs> I should never read. We need to take that out of the editing. But you see my point. My point is that it's one thing over another. It's incorrect details uh, that matter. But if I go out there and I try to like play whack-a-mole, it's just going to make it worse. You've got to be extremely careful with it. And you should have advocates fighting on your behalf. So this is one of the reasons we try to build relationships with editors and with journalists. And so we can go and back channel and say, hey, man, you got something totally wrong. You need to fix this. And then walk them through it in a way and in a manner that makes sense to them. So understanding how a newsroom works really goes and pays dividends when it comes to something like offering corrections. Because if you are trying to go and make them correct a story, for instance, at 4 p.m. on their deadline, when they're already trying to go and put in another breaking news piece, it's unlikely to happen. 4 p.m. local, I should say. Or if you're trying to you know, stuff them with a thousand different emails as opposed to putting everything in one comprehensive email and really trying to get the most salient and important facts corrected, uh, as opposed to a litany, like for instance, like small details like this comma shouldn't be here if it doesn't change the meaning of the story, isn't something that you should try and, and correct. But you might want to go and change, to your point, an egregiously incorrect fact. Uh, and then again, knowing how to approach a reporter that's what people that are PR agents do professionally. You know, we understand how it works in part because we talk to reporters all the time and we hear them complain about when we make a mistake, when we say something wrong or do something wrong. And like anyone who's paying attention, when they tell us off, often enough, you know, we'll change our behaviors. So, so what I'm trying to say is this is what PR agencies do. We try to figure out how best to do fact checks and uh, make sure that we can go and correct the record as required. My mistaken understanding of PR before I got into the space was that I have a message, I have a product, I have a company, I'm going to hire someone like you to 
get me more press, get me more customers. But that's incorrect, right? Your clients are more people who, yes, if I have an amazing product that benefits the space, you're going to help me get that message out there. But it's also for people who already are getting a lot of press and um, need really help with the messaging. Do do you ever do things like uh, you see on the TV show Scandal, like crisis management? We do crisis management all the time. Very often, many of our clients, what type of uh, so many crisis needs to be managed most, without telling me details. For instance, a hack. Let's pretend you're for a moment you're an exchange that's had a hack. Literally, what do you do? Now you can say, okay, we're going to go and call on our security experts, and you're right, you should. We're going to call our lawyers. Of course, you should. But lawyers aren't media experts, and they're not communications experts. And although they may think they are, and so they'll often tell your insurance company may suggest that you hire a PR agency. They might pay for it. And the reason they would is they want to go and limit the damage and they want to make sure that things happen correctly. So as an example, I'm just uh, giving a broad example. What if your security team is trying to go and trace who may have done the hack in the first place? What if you need to buy time? Well, at the same time, making sure that your the exchange's employees aren't immediately going and sending out their resumes to leave as fast as they can. Again, they don't yet understand the nature of the hack, how how bad it is or how contained it is, et cetera. You might be having to deal with a number of different regulators in different jurisdictions. What's the communications to them? And at the same time, you've got all the exchange customers, wherever they may be, who want to know, is my money safe? Am I going to be able to withdraw it? How am I going to do all this? At the same time, you're trying to go and keep the executives who are the ones making decisions, who are now in the most stressful situations, perhaps, of their lives. And you need to make sure that they stay on board and they're thinking clearly so they can make the decisions they need to. And this is what a PR agency can do. They can come in. They can be that type of senior counsel. They can help determine the playbook for how to handle the hack. And this is something that we've unfortunately had to do many times. Okay. Can we walk through like a a fictitious example? Because this is so intriguing. Most people don't know any of this. So um, let's just say we're a fictitious exchange. Let's call ourselves... um, Trade tradebitcoin.com. I don't know if that if no one owns that domain name, it should be <laughs> tradebitcoin.com. Uh you're you are one of their clients. Um largely they've been a great company, uh great clients. They're not a top exchange by any means. They're like a top 10, pretty decent exchange, making money, got a good, you know, good people. Let's just say they're US based, based in um based in um you know, any state, and let's just say this this exchange is regulated, whether they have a money transmitter license or security licenses, whatever it is, this, this exchange is regulated by a regulator in the United States. So you know that they have to deal with regulators. Mm-hmm. Let's just say this exchange woke up one morning and their hot wallets were empty and 20% of the money was um, was taken. And so as of this point, you're getting a call from the CEO of the exchange or someone of the compliance officer saying, David, we lost 20% of all our money. We may be able to have enough money to cover losses. We have to call the regulators. We call the police. We tell our, co- what do we do? What's the first thing you, you, you do? What, what, what's the first thing? Well, the first thing we do is, is talk to their security people to find out the extent of the hack. We need to go and get as much information as possible. But in the meantime, someone on the team is writing what's called a holding statement. So the holding statement okay. is essentially a, we're, this is what we know. You're, you're telling the public, here's what we know right now. And it's not too much detail because, hey, you may not know everything yet, but you need to go and say something. Uh, why do you need to say something? Uh, it's because people are going to start asking you questions 
and you literally will not have time to answer them all. It's just not possible. But obviously the the lawyers, so so with this holding statement, the lawyers want you to say as little as yep. possible, but you want to say as much as possible to keep everyone calm and make the company look no, good. No, it's you want to uh, say you, you want to say something in between. And you're going to say this with the approval of attorney of a counsel absolutely 100%. You're going to say this with approval of probably their compliance officer internally and certainly at the end with the CEO's approval. Absolutely. But this is why typically we engage with a client in advance and we try to go and create certain types of playbooks. We call them crisis communications guides. And so we do this on behalf of, of clients all the time. Basically, some basic holding statements, some basic framework. And when I say a playbook, I mean, literally, if the CEO is unavailable for more than 15 minutes, then approach the COO uh, and get comment from that person. If not, then this person. And you, you literally go and map out exactly what will be done. So this way, stakeholders have a plan. And you typically try to agree on that plan well in advance of something like this occurring. Otherwise, essentially, the team is on overdrive. And this is one of the great things about having international offices. So Waxman has offices in New York, Dublin, and Singapore. We often may engage one of our foreign offices or all of both of them to be working on this so it can be around the clock, which does happen. Uh, And they can be literally authoring the crisis communications guide while at the same time uh, meeting with the client uh, spend spending time with their staff, which we can talk about as we go through this example. Okay, so now what's so now what's the next step? You've um, you've engaged your Singapore office because this company uh, does a lot of business in Asia, and they are regulated by the Singaporean Monetary Authority. As, in addition to the U.S., let's just say this exchange trade Bitcoin has a you know a, a, a sister companies or they own multiple exchanges around the world. So now you're. You're interfacing. So this is crisis management. Yeah. Um, you put out the holding statement and you've frozen deposits and withdrawals. Correct, right? Is that something that you, you do? You, do you guys go for that? Do you say like we need to like basically pause everything? Is that a decision that you make, or is that more of the company's decision? So at the end of the day, everything is going to be the company's decision. The attorneys, everyone okay. is offering counsel on what they should do, and very often the way it works is there are a lot of phone calls where there's counsel, executives from the organization and ourselves on the phone and often other stakeholders as required. And so it's phone calls or in-person meetings, whatever is viable. Uh, by the way, we wouldn't necessarily only engage the Singapore team if it's something in Sing- where it's Singapore related or even East Asian related. It might simply be that you need people working while you're sleeping because there's literally not enough time, even if you want to work until one and wake up at five for you to be working on this and you need to have a clear head. So it's great to be able to actually engage a team of professionals to work while you're like, all over the exactly. world. Yeah. Um, in any, you yeah. know what I just want before we continue with the example. So be, before it's interesting. So before, like if we, if this happened now, this is what you'd be doing. But I feel like if this happened in 2014, what you'd be doing is a little bit different because in the back of your head, you have to say to yourself, how does this affect the industry as a whole? Right. So it's not just going back to like, you know, Bitcoin or crypto being your client. Um, because that's your industry. And if like, there's a message and this hacker not only found a way to hack the exchange, but also like hack a coin, let's just say it was a nascent new, you know, mineable coin that's, that's bootstrapped itself. And it's, it's great. You have to almost like say to yourself, shit, if I, if we say something that throws the coin or the token under the bus, that could be the end of this specific industry. No question. And by the way, we've seen 51% attacks as well. We've also seen attacks on various different iterations of proof of stake tokens. 
uh, as uh, that we've had to worry about. Things get very complicated. And by the way, this is exactly where some sort of technical, at least knowledge, is really important because how the hell are you supposed to go and tell that story to various different stakeholders without having any clue? Uh, Which is why the, you know, let's call it very large agencies out there, they simply don't have the type of expertise to be able to do this yet. One day they will, but I I just don't think they have it now. But in any event... Do you ever get large agencies that want to interface with you? Absolutely. And we've had, we've worked with some some uh, global networks uh, in the past who have simply needed to have that type of specialized knowledge for specific projects. And, you know, there are times when we're very happy to engage with them. But um, you're right. Uh, it's what you were saying earlier, Charlie. There can be systemic risk at times, if uh, especially early on, when people think that, you know, Bitcoin could die. And we haven't been fully responsible for that. But, I mean, of course, you remember the, the hard fork, right, when Bitcoin kind of split. Like yeah. This was a, a huge moment and people didn't know exactly what was going to happen. Uh, you know, we've seen like, every time there's a halving, there's, it's an incident and people want to know what's, what's going to happen. There's, I can't tell you how many times the, the ups and downs that many people who are listening to this feel, you know, we feel it too. Uh, because we're living in the entire industry. We're talking all the time to CEOs of all these different companies from all over the world and their entire lives, their companies, their employees, uh, their customers, everyone is affected. So, you know, for us, you know, we're we're living the ups and downs as much as anyone. How do you actually live your life on crypto? How do you do it? I've been doing it since I first got started with Bitcoin back in what, like 2011. But since 2016, I've been using the BitPay debit card to spend my Bitcoin on a day-to-day basis. And it's been such a great product that I've been using it for over three years. BitPay is now sponsoring Untold Stories, and they're going to be giving away free Visa debit cards to all my listeners. All you have to do is visit bitpay.com forward slash Charlie. It's such an easy card to use. You get the card in the mail, you download the BitPay app, you put Bitcoin on the app, and when you want to send Bitcoin from the app into your debit card, it only takes a few seconds and you can spend your Bitcoin anywhere credit cards are offered. It's really so easy. You almost wonder, like, why didn't this come out in 2011 when Bitcoin first launched? Well, it was very difficult to do. In fact, I actually tried to launch my own debit card, but I wasn't able to because the credit card companies were very reluctant to do it. But now BitPay launched their product and a lot of other companies have launched credit cards and debit cards using Bitcoin over the years. I still will only use the BitPay card. I'm very loyal to the brands I like um, and I hope you guys are too. The fees are very low. You can use it to withdraw cash at ATMs. You can use it all around the world with very, very low fees. A lot of companies have tacked on like super high fees. And I don't like that. So check it out. BitPay.com forward slash Charlie. That's BitPay.com forward slash Charlie. You get a free card. You don't have to pay for it. Usually the card costs like 10 bucks or more. There's a commitment, but you don't have to do that here. It's a free card. There's literally no reason to not try it out. I've been using it for over three years. So check it out. And thanks for listening to Untold Stories. And I want to talk about Bitpanda for a second. I mentioned at the beginning of the show that we're working with them and we have been for a few months now. They love me and I love them. So I'm asking that you give them some love and some support, especially if you're listening from Europe. Bitpanda is the leading European platform for investing in digital assets. It doesn't hurt. Actually, it helps that they're based out of Austria, which is one of my favorite countries in the world. And Vienna is 
one of my favorite cities in the world to visit. I try to go as frequently as I can. And, you know, meeting up with the Bitpanda team is always a pleasure. I really like Bitpanda's approach. Why? Well, basically what they're doing is to apply the same tech that we're used to from Bitcoin and apply it to other digitized assets. And, and I'll explain why. And, and if you check out their website, you'll understand how that actually works because they're really pushing hard for bringing crypto to the masses and, and educate people on the topic. Unlike other companies that just want to really give love to their customers, Bitpanda is giving love and, and, and spending money on mass adoption, just bringing more people into Bitcoin. With their recently launched educational platform, it's not only free, it's called Bitpanda Academy. It's not only free, but you'll actually learn and you'll earn five euro just for taking quizzes on their site. So it's a great way to force you to learn more about Bitcoin. Check them out. Again, they give me love. So I'm asking for you, my listeners, to give them some love. Over the years, I've learned a lot from crypto winters, a lot of the bull and bear markets, and there's a lot of things that I've learned. But one of the most important things that I've learned is that community is one of our strongest assets. It allows us to continue working together and talking to each other during the good times, the bad times, and hopefully not the ugly times. Over the past few months, I've been speaking with the Pepo team. These guys have spent years working with members of the crypto community and learning what we want in social sharing apps. And I'm really excited that Pepo is now one of the sponsors for Untold Stories. Even in the few weeks since they launched Pepo at DevCon, not that long ago, I've seen them make so many improvements like hashtag search based on feedback from people using the app and so many different features that combine the best parts of what we already love, that parts of Instagram, Facebook, Snapchat, but it combines it in a perfect way with such a nice user experience and good security. It combines them so perfectly that it looks like, and it actually was built for the crypto community. You can download the app by going to pepo.com forward slash stories, and you can find me there at Charlie Shrem, the same as my Twitter handle. When you first launched the company, um, the and this is not just in your specific section of our industry. It's it's the you know it, it it's true as a whole. Um, it was very much so like we're gonna work together um, to grow this pie instead of you know like deathly competing with each other. And just from the way that you um, just from the way that you speak about Michael Turpin, you know, it sounds like with with endearment, you know, as as a colleague. Um, and it's it's nice to see. So that it's good to see that that's continuing to happen in your section of the industry. But um, I have to say, David, like myself and a lot of people were very disheartened. And I'll tell you why. Um, crypto Twitter has always been crazy. Reddit, the forums, whatever. But that's individual people. That's fine. Recently, I would say like in the past six months to a year, we're starting to see crypto media fight each other. I've ne I never thought I would see the day when you have the block and coin desk like truly hating on each other. Um, I think our industry is too young for that. I don't think we're there yet for, for us to be really fighting each other and bringing each other down. Uh, you're seeing industry people take sides, toxicity, tribalism. It's very negative. It's not, it's not good. It's not good for us to be fighting each other. Do you see that? Do you shake your head and see that? And like, almost like to a point where if you give a story to one, you know, news agency, the other ones won't talk to you. I know this is true where I've had companies tell me that if, a, if they gave an embargoed story, 
to one agent, to one, you know, news outlet in our space, the other ones won't report it. So the tribalism thing is a real problem. It is a really big problem because our space is still very, very young. We're infantile and we're fighting with each other. It's just, it's, it's terrible. We are very much on the same team. So one of the things that drove me to put all of my time, all of my energy, my entire heart into this space is that it's open source. And by that, I mean, everyone's rooting for each other. They're willing to go and take the very best of ideas, have a healthy debate about what those ideas are, and then often incorporate the best of those ideas into code. They, this, this happens continuously. We've seen people watching what Ethereum's done and make new versions of smart contract programs or protocols somewhere else, maybe using a different line of tech. And someone can look at Cardano, for instance, and then say, hey, we want to go and make this, this one change. And then again, they could have their own version of things. It allows for remarkable experimentation. And what you've often seen are people rooting for each other, often with their forks. We've seen literally friendly forks of I can't tell you how many different protocols that have gone on to do great things. And sometimes they start one degree of separation away and then they turn out to be 500 times different. It's, it's amazing. And the tribalism that's come in this industry, um, that's plagued this industry, is, is terrible. It's, it's one of the worst things that I've seen because if we're fighting with each other, we're not fighting the good fight, which is to convince the world of the importance of blockchain, distributed ledgers, distributed technologies, et cetera. Uh, we still have a whole lot of work to do when it comes to that. And we've seen that because of the bust of the altcoin market in 2018, and let's say the slowdown in 2019, we've seen a lot of people have lost hope in, in, in some parts of this industry. They shouldn't. Do you really think that's true? I mean, after all the bull and bear cycles that we've been through, do you think that this one really scared a lot of people, even if they've been through the other ones before? No. So those people are fine. So, Charlie, the people like you, the people like me, we're going to be optimists, probably well past when we should be. But the reason we will is we're permables for life yes, because we've been there since I don't want to say the beginning. You've been there a lot longer than I have. But that many years, it's going to go. You're going to go in and live through multi-year bear markets. You're going to go and say, OK, that's that's fine, because also we're able to we're in a privileged position. I'm able to go and have conversations with people building incredible technology all the time that are on the absolute bleeding edge. So, of course, I'm going to be convinced in speaking to the best academics at a high-end university who are iterating on something really remarkable or coming out with something revolutionary that just needs the right partnership to make it work, right? So I'm going to be optimistic. But what if you are a cab driver in Kuala Lumpur, right? What if you are a, uh, an everyday business owner in Mumbai? What then? So I feel like the, the fact that things got so heightened so very quickly has to some extent become a problem. It's both a blessing and a curse. It's a blessing insofar as lots of people know about blockchain. Every Fortune 500 CEO has said that, or nearly all of them, have said that word in earnings calls. That's a great thing. But on the other hand, the fact that some people lost money is a grave and terrible concern uh, because it's led to lots of other negative effects, including mistrust from, I'd say, the general public who isn't as educated, uh, who hasn't lived in this space quite as long. So as a result, I think there's a much harder road to earn those people's trust back. And I, I think it starts with Bitcoin. I really do. I think that the, the people who are Bitcoin maximalists, although I may disagree with them on some things, they have one great point. It works. It's just not going down. And consequently, uh, it's a great way for people to start building trust in the general community. And uh, I think we've seen that. That's a great point. And I think that the maximalists um, have that point because a lot of the maximalists that I speak to 
lost money in scams. So they're jaded for real reasons that they're trying to protect other people. Now, of course, um, some of them may take it too far. We don't agree. But you're right. I think the point is there that Bitcoin is here to stay. It's the one that was that is successful. It's the first one, and it's going to continue to be successful, although it's, it's still an experiment just like um, the other ones are. But how funny is that what you say that, you know, you're speaking to people that are, that are building amazing technology every single day. You're in these meetings, you're, you're talking to new tech, you're talking to brilliant people, you're talking to people that are excited about this industry every day. Or even someone like me, I do this podcast like four days a week. I get jaded, I get burnt out, I get tired too. So next time I get sad or something, I'm just going to call you and you're going to tell me like, Charlie, yeah, but this guy is doing this amazing new technology or this girl is doing this something amazing. You're going to be that like excitement that I need. I, I, I'm, I'm personally pumped all the time by listening to these incredible people. <laughs> I, I hear great stories all the time. Although, yes, we hear lots of problems as we've discussed, whether it's you know challenges within an organization, whether it's an industry problem, uh, whatever it may be anywhere in the world at least I get to hear great things all the time. And and that's why I cannot wait to come into work every day. You surround yourself with, with all people in, in our space. You ever go to like, you know, as the holidays are coming up, family dinners where you're the only one who knows anything remotely about crypto and you're just sitting around the table and your family's almost teasing you or I, I'm saying this because it happens to me even 10 years on. And then when you're sitting there, you're almost wondering like, yeah, like, you know, what they kind of say is right. Like just putting me down or putting the industry down, although that's changed a lot. And I'll tell you the, the, the way I changed that was that I just gave a Bitcoin to all my family members in like in 2012. And the ones that are still holding are still up a ton of money, but the ones that sold can't, you know, can't, can't put me down. They can't give me shit. Oh yeah. So one of the first things that I historically have done is whenever we have a new staff member uh, in the New York office, is I give them $20, and a $20 bill. And they have to take that $20 bill and they've got to go to the local Bitcoin ATM. They go through the KYC themselves and they load that Bitcoin on their wallet. And we'll say, okay, put on Jax or put on Edge or whatever it may be. And they will actually see it. And it's just $20, but it actually makes it tangible for someone who previously was working in some big international agency that has primarily been working with, let's say, either consumer technology or with B2B tech that's being used by X number of people. And here they are holding this intangible asset, but finally they're holding it and they can see it. And even though it's just the price movement that they're probably seeing, uh, they're probably not thinking at very first about all the things that go into making that happen. They're not looking at the block explorers. They're not looking at the number of confirmations. They're not thinking about block times, right? None of that stuff. But at the very least, it gets them thinking about it. And I found that to be a really, really great way for people to get involved. And eventually they start doing the same thing you did and I did, reading white paper, uh, talking to their clients and asking them questions, dumb questions. But dumb questions become very smart ones when you've been doing it for a few months and just swimming and living in this world. And it's amazing uh, watching a, a new staff member when the, the kind of the, the light switches on, when it just starts to click for them, when they're like, okay, this makes sense. And then suddenly very, very complicated things can make sense too, because they've got enough of an introductory base where they can start making sense of kind of the things that have added on to Bitcoin over time. What, what excites people now? Like what, what are you seeing? Um, what messaging or what information is making, you know, new people excited about, about our space nowadays? So new people, I think it's still the basics. New people still want to know that it's more, they think it's incredible that something digital can simply have value something born on the internet 
just of the internet, not sponsored by any single nation state. They think that's incredible. Uh, Isn't that a crazy thing yeah. when you think about it? It really is. And it's something that is completely global. So people are used to payments just not working. And I, my, my personal pipe dream is I very much want to have Bitcoin or a cryptocurrency as a means of global payment. I think it's great. Because I mean, I personally have seen wire transfers fail because some bank somewhere in between just didn't work or someone was on vacation or who knows what happened. We've seen that payments by itself is a, is a huge, huge problem. And we've seen tons of companies iterating on that and making it better. Stripe is one of those companies taking legacy tech and making it kind of work, uh, among others. But again, it's, it's troublesome. And we've already seen that Bitcoin can transfer value from A to B and cannot be stopped. It's been doing so for 10 years uh, extremely well. And that money is immediately spendable or near immediately spendable. That is to say, there's no holdup. There's no, there's no one that can stop you from having access to it. That's amazing. And it remains amazing today, just as amazing as it was to me, you know, when I really started learning about this in 2014. And newcomers, that's what they think about. People who have been through this space, a lot of people are excited about DeFi right now. I think we've seen that, especially in the Ethereum community. People are saying, why can't crypto essentially become more sophisticated? We're seeing options markets open up, which I think is very interesting. Again, providing some sort of liquidity to the space. And the reason why that matters is because you want to have essentially pricing that over time is less volatile uh, for some of these, like for instance, payment methods to work, for platform tokens to work, uh, for gas to be a commodity, which it really needs to be for things to operate well. Over the past 10 years, one of our biggest commodity, one of the biggest spy products of what we've done, of what you've done, is messaging, right? And the me- the messaging of, of financial literacy, of, you know, taking back control of your money, of your finances, and, you know, the whole concept of Bitcoin and censorship-resistant payments. But I think, as a whole, the most common non-political message, the most common you know, like if you're a big government believer or whatever, the most common, the most, um, the message that you'd get out of this was payments need to change. Our payment system was broken. Now I was at the first money 2020 conference, money 2020 conference now is like the FinTech, you know, financial technology conference in the world. There are, there are other big ones too, but especially in the U S money 2020, I was at the first one. I think it was like 2011 or 2012 Bit Instant had a booth. And just to give you an example, our booth, the Bit Instant booth, said the word Bitcoin more than it said the word Bit Instant on it. It wasn't even a booth for my company. It was a booth for Bitcoin. And Roger Via was hanging out at the booth, Eric Voorhees, Jed McCaleb, Jesse from Kraken. This was before Kraken, hanging out at the booth, evangelizing Bitcoin. Back then, the only company in the space, and I'll tell you this, the only company in the space that was actually doing anything can you guess who had the largest booth in that space? PayPal. Mm. PayPal had the, the largest booth. They were the only ones innovating. And even their innovation was shit back then. Why am I even saying this? Why am I wasting time right now talking about this? I'll tell you why. If it wasn't for Satoshi, if it wasn't for Bitcoin, no one would be talking about fintech as much as we're talking about it now. No one would give a shit, David. I'm telling you, Venmo, these other ones may not have ever existed. Because the message, the idea that the financial technology world needs to change, payments need to get better, that idea started with Bitcoin. That idea started with Satoshi. And now the global, and you tell me if I'm wrong, because you deal with regulators in the press, the global regulatory world and and the, the global business community as a whole that has a financial incentive for, for Bitcoin to not succeed, 
they are going to they're going to push and they're going to want you know the Venmos of the world to be the successful ones why because those companies are building on top of the 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 rails that we already have existed for the past 100 years 200 300 years those shitty ass rails so you're just building on top of those rails and sure Venmo's great it works but it builds on those rails and it still can be frozen it can still be censored it's not the pro- it's it's literally the emperor wearing you know new clothes uh but it does innovate it makes it easier for like my friends and family to do payments it's easier it's it's more innovative so it's not a negative thing in and of itself but i guess the negative thing and what pisses me off is that our industry gets no credit we get no credit for bringing this concept of financial literacy and how important this is no one no one talks about that ever can you please talk about that <laughs> well i'll say this 2 years ago I was standing behind the dash booth at Money 2020 in Las Vegas. And you're right, it's become a true. And those guys should get freaking more credit too, because they're the guerrilla marketing. They've done they're out they've there. They've done some incredible work. The the Dash DAO is 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 really remarkable in, in a lot of ways. But so I was there I was sitting behind the booth, and this man about, I don't know, 55, 60 years old, definitely has gray hair, comes up to the booth and starts asking all sorts of questions. And he goes very quickly from A to at least M in terms of complexity. It's remarkable. And every time we answer questions, and Ryan Taylor, who is the CEO of Dashcore, comes over and is helping me answer the questions as well. And we're just having this active conversation and it, and it becomes increasingly sophisticated. Uh, by the end of the conversation, the guy handed us his business card. And he was an employee, an economist at the Federal Reserve. Turns out this person is a student of money. He absolutely loves exploring cryptocurrency. And the reason he does is because it's remarkable to him. Actual cryptocurrency, payment tokens. This, this is something that he really cares a great deal about and he's devoted his entire life to do. So I do think we're making waves. That was two years ago. And I do think that there are people who are paying attention. I think that Libra has brought, uh, basically accelerated the conversation when it comes to uh, governments, when it's come to banks. It's brought it forward 10 times. Uh, maybe too quickly, to be honest. Maybe we weren't prepared for it. But people are talking about it. And at first, it was just pure fear that you were hearing. Now you're seeing, at least seems to me, from my reading of the news, that there's an increasing amount of, well, basically comfort with the fact that there's something here. Now, is it an asset-backed coin? Is it something that's quite different than others? Uh, Is it uh, potentially controlled by a governance council of of corporations that you may or may not trust? Whatever. It's built on a proof-of-stake system, uh, the hot stuff system. Not too dissimilar from Cypherium, which I think is quite interesting. And uh, they are, they're trying to build things. They're actually putting out, you can see in some of the newsletters, they're putting out academic research on a continuous basis. They're moving the industry forwards. And I think that that's a very good thing. So I think that that conversation is not going to stop, Charlie. I think people are going to increasingly give credit to the originators of this space uh, as some of the people pioneering the way the future of money is going to work. Uh, but that having been said, let me just say what's one thing to defend the sure. the big government folks. They have a lot to lose. Like you cannot instantaneously take someone who has real estate that's been stable, uh, that whose business is based on two uh, percent margins. You know they're they're a convenience store. You can't immediately uproot their business and and make them dependent on something that uh, you know could tomorrow bankrupt them and their family. So when you have a lot to lose, my point is. You got to be careful. And so I can understand at the very least their position, even if I don't agree with their tactics. No, you're right, though. And I, I agree with you. But I think. I think 
I don't like to put blame on anyone, but I think that maybe it's our fault that our messaging was wrong, or maybe it's their fault that their understanding was wrong. Uh, maybe it's both. In the beginning, you know, in the early days that 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 you and I were around for, the messaging was very anarchist. Yeah. And you had to move it on, you had to move it away from that into more of the, you know, the crypto anarchism and the the we just want to make the world a better place using technology message. Um, but I guess the message that I saw and Josh Harvey, the, the creator of the Lemisau and his brother, Zach, they, I remember in 2012, they told me this and I wish I had like started tweeting this every day. Cause it was a great quote. We're not trying to end the fed. And I almost wish I can rewind and speak to that gentleman that you spoke to in that example. We're not trying to end the fed. We're not trying to change the real estate. All we're doing is following an economic course of action that these, you know, the governments and the banks have been subscribing to for hundreds of years, and that's capitalism. And what does capitalism allow us to do? It allows us to compete with each other. And by competing with each other, it allows us to grow and allows us to, to, to continue to make sure that our services are better than our competitors, therefore better for the industry, therefore the whole industry grows. But the message shouldn't have been end the Fed. The message should have been, David, we want to transcend the Fed. Now, that's still not a great message. You know, I'm not going to go over and say, hey, I want to transcend you. But at least that's me saying, hey, I see myself as now wanting to compete with you, not trying to end you. I want to compete with you. You know, I'm going to allow, I'm going to create a voluntary system that people will choose to use your Federal Reserve or my lack of Federal Reserve, right? Like that to me was like, I'm not a violent person. I'm not going to end anything. I want to just create a better system that if you, David, were an outsider, you'd say down the road, you'd say, hey, this is a freaking better system. I'm going to use it. That should be the message. Not we want to end you. And, and, and I fault for that message. I almost have to fault those super, super ideological people that are no longer with us today, like in our space. Those are, there were some people that came that wanted to make this space extremely anarchist. Eventually as 2014, 2015 came on, um, the ones that we see today are the more of the moderate ones, but the very extreme ones left our space to go to back to like the whole, the Liberty reserves and the four chans. But that's what the message should have been. No. Well, I'll say this. If, I told you that I was, you know, and total amateur. I'd never been in a boxing ring in my life. And I was half the weight of a heavyweight boxer. If I told you that my aspiration was to go and beat down Mike Tyson in his prime, you'd laugh. You wouldn't take me seriously. So why even start the conversation there? Why go all the way to the end to what your eventual goal is after you do a ton of weight training and an enormous number of hours in the ring with the right professionals training? Why not go and set goals that make sense if you want people to believe in you, if you want them to go and get on your side? And so I, I'd say something more approachable at first. If I could do the PR for Bitcoin in 2012, I'd be talking about the small things. Can you imagine that this money can be transferred from A to B in 10 minutes and you can spend it? Just start there. That's amazing. Wow, you're right. And the cost of transferring oh, right. back then, because you know mining fees were very cheap, was zero. Uh, and look, the money exists. In fact, here's my money from yesterday and my balance from yesterday. Here's my money today. Look, it still exists. What? It really does? Yes. 
to start with small achievable victories and broadcast those as best you can get people on board. Once they, once they realize that I, I can't tell you how many stories, one of uh, my, actually my longest running client, one of, the, one of the launch ones is a company called CoinSource. They're the Bitcoin ATM network I told you about earlier. So CoinSource has about yes. 300 machines throughout the U.S. Uh, and they are, they're one of the largest networks. I think they are the largest network in the world based out of New York, correct? Uh, I'm very familiar with yes, them. Exactly. And so CoinSource is a great company. And what we found is that they are really newsworthy when they put a single ATM in some random town. So it might be some, a city in New Orleans or in Louisiana you've never heard of before. But when there's one, there's a Bitcoin ATM machine in the convenience store that people can go to, you can call up the local news uh, anchors, and it might be that they send a news crew to investigate how this town now has access to magic internet money. It's an amazing thing. And again, it's that same exact introductory conversation I had earlier. The reason why I want to give $20 to a new employee so they can go and see it for themselves. It's, it's a discovery. And I feel like that's convincing sufficiently. We don't need to go and say, and the Fed. Right now, it's look what works. That is far more believable and people will trust it because they should. You're right. And I think the cannabis industry is taking a lot of um, cues from what you just said, because, um, you know, here in Florida, we don't have recreational cannabis. It's it's medical. But even even the people that have medical cards, I mean, you're talking about a few hundred thousand people. Right. So, I mean, a 15 million pop, 15 million per person population of Florida, a few hundred thousand people, like one to 200,000 people. Um, so that doesn't equivalent, it doesn't, you know, it doesn't allow for, a, for, for, for an industry to have four dispensaries that are super nice, well-stocked within a five-minute drive of my house. Now, I'm happy about that. I'm not complaining about that. It's cool. Um, but at the same time, they're not making any money. Um, and on top of that, MedMen, for example, literally has evangelists outside of their dispensary, three or four at a time, they're paying those salaries just to talk to people about cannabis. So like you said, I think it's the same kind of idea, right? That evangelism, that messaging, it's the talking, it's the discovery, it's the, oh, cool, there's a dispensary um, here. And if, and if anyone wants to really, really, and I wish we had this for Bitcoin, David, but if anyone wants to be really heartened by the future of cannabis, download Leafly, change your location to Florida, and read the reviews of the dispensaries and the different strains of cannabis. Dude, it's unbelievable. I was reading last night a like 20-page review of a strain written by this like 75-year-old guy with glaucoma. Unbelievable review. Unbelievable. So cool. That's why I believe in meetups. You know, what you just said we don't have as many physical places in a space that's nearly purely digital, but meetups and places where you can meet with people who can evangelize properly or improperly, but at the very least get messed across is so important. It's right now, Bitcoin's probably not taught in a lot of schools, but in 10 years, I think it will, you know, people are going to learn what Bitcoin is and maybe even the basic mechanics of how it works in a lot of places. Certainly we know the universities are offering blockchain courses and they tend to be, some of the most popular, particularly business schools. That is a really, really good start. I remember it wasn't that long ago where it, all the innovation, for instance, was occurring in the private sector and academia was lagging far, far behind. Now you see research papers everywhere. Well, it starts in the super complicated tertiary and quaternary education la layer 
but it's going to increasingly go down to elementary. And I think that's a good thing. Um, what you mentioned right there, I, I do believe that for some campaigns, the best thing are the best thing to do is to do small steps in a strategically aligned fashion. That's what to do. Get people's buy-in, uh, secure it, and then move on. Before we end the show, tell us some metrics about Watchmen. Um, how many people you guys got working for you? Obviously, you know your shit, right? You know what you're talking about as evident on this show. How about your, you know, your upper management, your middle management? Where do you find your staff? Are they as passionate about you? And, you know, you're running a, you're running a global multi-office, very decentralized company. How do you maintain uh, that fervor? How do you maintain that uh, a very VIP-ness of your company to your clients? It is incredibly hard. It really is. Because in the agency world, there's going to be staff turnover. And so training becomes a constancy. It's something that we're always trying to upgrade. And one of the things that we get to do is, and this is a real privilege, is we do lunch and learns for our staff where we might bring in some crypto lawyer or we'll bring in uh, the, uh, the CEO who's been backing a protocol or someone who works high up in an exchange. And they'll come in and they'll literally lecture. So we'll have our own mini school within our offices. And that's so important. We, we incentivize staff to go to conferences, to go to meetups. This way they can learn on their own. And of course, we do try our very best to allocate accounts to staff in a kind of mixed way. So there isn't hardcore specialization where only some people work, for instance, on layer one protocols and other people on, let's call it, consumer-ish applications of blockchain or others with blockchain plus like agribusiness or healthcare or supply chain. Instead, we try to go and have a healthy mix. And the reason for that is everyone should know what a sidechain is. And the best way to learn about that isn't just to read about it, but to work on it. So you have to be responsible for evangelizing one. And that's a really, really good education. Um, it's simply swimming in. And it does take time. Uh, we are our, our best people, and we're always looking for staff. Uh, is our best people not only come from B2B tech backgrounds or something like that, but they're people who have been at Waxman for a certain period of time. Typically, in about six months is when you can say, okay, I get it. And when they do, it is incredible the work product that uh, they're able to put out. And so it's important to always have a staff of people who have been there, who can train the, the people who are new to up, upskill them and to benefit the clients. So it's an extremely hard journey. And I've spent a lot of time on airplanes trying to evangelize to our staff to bring in great talent and to keep them as, as best possible. And so Waxman's grown from you know a team of one to uh, at our peak, a little over 100 to about 80 right now between our three offices. David Waxman, you are not only training these people to be running, you know, your company, you're training them to be running our industry, you know, that, and that's so important. So thank you for that. Um, the dozens and dozens and dozens of people that you've, um, you know, brought into the space over the years. And so I count those people that you've trained that have now left you to go work in the space. Like that's okay. If you get an employee that comes to a team member that comes to you and says, Hey David, like I found a better opportunity working you know, for this specific yep. company, but they're in crypto. Yeah, it must be sad for you, but you must be happy at least that 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 these people are staying in the space. And then your tentacles are growing, right? Because you're maintaining good relationships with these people. Absolutely. I mean, there's now, and this is a frightening thing. It's shocking to me on an everyday basis. There's a Waxman alumni network, and they communicate. Really? Oh, sure. More with each other than with me, for sure. 
but it's I want to be in that network. It's amazing. And uh, just the other day, for instance, uh, a former uh, employee from Ireland who decided she wanted to go travel came by and stopped in the New York office. She spent the last three months traveling around uh, South Asia and Southeast Asia, and she's going to go and spend another few months in Central and South America. And this is a person who knows her stuff and cold. And wherever she goes, whether she's talking about yoga or something else, eventually if the conversation ever turns to it, she's going to be an incredible evangelist for our industry because, well, she's been trained and again, she knows her stuff and she believes in it. That's why she decided to work with for so long. And I'd always love to work with uh, you know, former employees again, but uh, it's, it's, it's remarkable to see them move on and, and accomplish great things. And I'm so proud of what they've done. You're literally like the evangelist trainer. David Waxman, thank you so much for coming on the show. Waxman PR. And to our listeners, if you feel like you could use some of David's services or his company, Waxman PR, anywhere in the world, give him a call. Tell him David and Charlie sent you. They'll make I'll make sure that they actually raise your price because <laughs> <Please>. of that. Please. <laughs> Charlie, great speaking with you. Thanks so much. Yeah, David. Thank you so much for coming on the show, and I'll talk to you later. Hey, everyone. Thanks for listening. New episodes of Untold Stories are released every Tuesday and Thursday at 7 a.m. EST on untoldstories.com, Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast. Untold Stories is produced by Jason Yanowitz, Michael E. Polito, Reed Hannaford, and Riley Silbert of BlockWorks Group. Our account executives are Gina DeFelice and Julie Muroff. Our content is written by Kathy Zolo, Ronnie Tishner, and Scott Offer. Special thanks to Wayne Dallaire from Jump Dog Audio Productions. And of course, I'm your host, Charlie Shrem. You can follow me on Twitter, at Charlie Shrem, to continue the conversation. Send me some messages, feedback, or anything you want to say. And remember, please give some love to my sponsors, and I'll see you next week. Remember, strength in numbers. And information is power.